would you please take your Bible with me and join me in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll set our attention on the first six verses, but we'll read from chapter 4, verse 14 through verse 10 of chapter 5. So having your Bible with you, look with me please at Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chooses, or every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, being made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated, children. You can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Thinking this morning about Hebrews as a book, it's, it's not hard for us to see that Hebrews is magnifying the supremacy of Jesus over every other religious confidence. Jesus is better. He, the high priest, is over us in every way we can imagine, but gentle toward us in every way we could hope for. I, I do wonder if you know the gentle embrace of Jesus. I do wonder. But I'm thankful that a study in the book of Hebrews is helping us. However, more than my wondering if you know the gentle embrace of Jesus, I wonder if you know the gentle embrace of God the Father. 
I wonder if you know that it was God the Father who has begotten God the Son to be such a superior and such a gentle high priest. I wonder if you have a mistake that is not, not intentional, accidental. Where you think something like, God is holy, and God the Father would have condemned me to eternal destruction, but Jesus intervened. Thankful for Jesus saving me from God's disappointments. Maybe something you accidentally say. I don't say that as judgment. I say that as a person who relates to it. I, I confessed later as an adult that much of my childhood sounded like that. God is holy. I am bad. He's mad at me. And thank the Lord Jesus stepped in so that I wouldn't have to deal with God. Texts like this one, in the middle of a book that says Jesus is better, texts like this one help us say, don't forget, all that you're thankful for in Jesus is from God the Father. The title for the sermon is, The High Priest for the People Called by God. This section, it started last time in verses 14 through 16, and it's a long section. It goes all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. That's the section. I'm not going to preach it in one sermon. But it goes all the way to chapter 10, verse 18. And it's going to emphasize Jesus the high priest. And you're going to pick up on something today that you're going to learn more about, especially in chapter 7. Pastor Will is preaching next week, and he'll say a little bit more about it next week. But you'll hear a lot more about Melchizedek, this mysterious character in Genesis that is only mentioned in Genesis and Psalm, and then again here in places in the New Testament like Hebrews. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews, we discover why believers can hold fast their confession. It's because we have a better high priest. A priest appointed to us by God. So here, do you remember three weeks ago when I invited you to that somewhat particular, maybe even odd imagery of us running into the throne room like kids and dancing and playing around the throne of God as a word picture for what verse 15 and 16 say, that we should draw near to the Father with confidence knowing that his throne is one of mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let me just take that last sentence or last statement. To help you in your time of need. When you go to bed at the end of the day angry at a spouse or a child, and you know that you've said some things that were sinful. The next morning, as you haven't yet made those things right, do you feel like, I'm unfit to pray. I'm unfit to read the Bible. 
because I'm needy. 16, chapter 4, verse 16. That you would find his throne to be a throne of mercy and grace in the very time of need. Not just when you think, I've done pretty well lately. I think I can go to God now. So chapter 5, verse 1 through 10, tell us why it is that we can have the confidence to go and dance and play around like kids, even in the presence of God, with confidence. It is because we have this high priest. A high priest appointed by God. A high priest that we learn more about by considering an odd character named Melchizedek. Now, okay. You remember last, I mean, two weeks ago I told you about chiasms? Do you remember chiasms? Uh, chiasms are literary structures where uh, you're, you're helped to see comparisons, like point one and point, uh, let me see if I can do the math, point one and point six will say similar but different things, and then two and five will say similar but different things. And then three and four will say similar but different things. And three and four help you understand what the main point is. There's one here in verses one through 10. Okay, let me just read it. It sounds like this. The office of high priest, according to chapter five, verse one. Building on that, the solidarity of the high priest to the people. Verse two and three, you see it? And then verse four, the appointment of a high priest according to the old covenant. How did Aaron become priest? Okay, now let's walk back out of that. So that's the main point. The appointment of a high priest in the Old Covenant. Let's walk back out. In verse 5 and 6, the appointment of Christ the high priest. In verse 7 through 8, the solidarity of Christ to his people. And then verses 9 and 10, the new office of high priest, better than, in verse 1, the office of high priest in the Old Testament. That's a chiasm, right? So we're going to build... But what I hope you saw in that is the central theme is the appointment of high priests in the Old Testament and the appointment of Christ by God in the New Covenant. So, for this sermon, just, just two points. I hope that they're simple, and I hope I'm able to say them in a simple way. The high priest is from God, from among the people for their need. And second, the high priest is called to serve by God, the Father. The high priest has a service that is selected from among the people, and that selection is done by God, the Father. Okay? Just two points. I'm going to confess. In fact, if if you would pray for me, I would appreciate it. Because there's so much to these two simple points that I'm concerned about getting lost in the weeds a little bit. So you pray for me, and then uh, trust the Lord answers those prayers and we stay out of some of the weeds. The first point is this one. The high priest is of the people and for the people. Hmm. Sounds like something we've heard before, doesn't it? The high priest is of the people and for the people. Maybe it does sound like something we've heard before because it's a, a model of reasonable authority. 
of the people and for the people sounds reasonable. And in verses 1 through 3, we find first the high priest is from the people. Every high priest chosen from among man is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The high priest is picked from the people to act on behalf of the unrighteous before the righteous. High priests are selected from the people by God. They have a special privilege and responsibility. And it says here in the verses, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. The high priest is to carry out this mediating gift, offering sacrifice. This is seen most clearly on what's called the Day of Atonement. The high priest offers gifts and sacrifices to atone for the people. So the high priest is from the people, and the high priest is for the people. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. If we're thinking about ourselves participating in the mediating work of a high priest, you understand who we are in those two verses? Well, we're not the high priest, and we're not the one to whom the sinner's being reconciled, so who are we? Well, the high priest deals gently, offering mediation for the sinner to the father. Who are we? The ignorant and wayward. Now, if that seems unsettling, it, it might be indication that you're, you're still grasping what exactly the good news is. <laughs> the good news isn't that deserving people get into heaven. The good news is that undeserving people are gifted heaven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everlasting life. The delight of the Father. He then deals gently with those who are weak, ignorant, wayward. The priest was able to avoid some sort of hierarchical judgment of the people. This is relevant to even your elders here at IBC. Like, as I say this, I feel this. I, I do not stand and say, okay, we need to confess sin and have assurance. You need to confess sin and have assurance. I embrace the fact that we must confess our sins and receive the assurance of Jesus Christ. So this high priest, able to minister gently with people because, <coughs> because they feel the infirmities of their flesh, makes perfect sense to us. We don't deal with our children with some sort of idealistic perfection because we know our own imperfections. So we deal gently. Can you imagine the Day of Atonement? All the lambs being brought to the priests. Blood flowing. 
from the tabernacle on the ground, saturated. You would walk around the perimeter and you would slosh in the bloodshed of the tabernacles, Day of Atonement. And can you imagine the temptation to be a priest who would say, I'm so sick of these people that just killed a lamb last year and now here they are again. Didn't they learn last time that something was going to die if you don't shape up? There was no high priest who thought that way. Because the high priest was reminded in the sacrifice system that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. I'm going to get to that in a moment. These two verses, however, verse 2 and verse 3, remind us that we are, in fact, ignorant. There's a single article, the ignorant and therefore wayward. So there's a single article, meaning these aren't meant to be synonyms or two separate things. They're meant to be kind of more of a cause and effect. Because we are ignorant, we sometimes find ourselves wayward from God's will and direction, instruction. Paul calls himself ignorant. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, I have received the mercy of God because when I acted wickedly, I did it in ignorance. There's sometimes, according to Genesis, or Acts 17.30, when God overlooks sins that are done by people in ignorance. You ever committed a crime or a sin and didn't know it was a crime or a sin? Apollos came and preaches in Acts 18. And the Bible tells us that he's a good speaker. And he came and spoke some things really correctly about Jesus. However, he only knew about John's baptism. So he got some things wrong because he didn't know everything he needed to know yet. So some friends pull him aside and say, oh, you don't know about this yet. And of course, because he acted ignorantly, they didn't say, you're not allowed to preach anymore. They said, you don't know, but now you do. Go and preach accordingly. It's clear from these verses that the humanity of the high priest required him to make offering not only for the people, but for himself. This, friends, is the weakness of a priesthood called the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood. It's Aaron's priestly line. And it's got some glaring imperfections in it. The gospel, however, tells us of a new priest, of a different order. However, the gospel tells us that Jesus is a priest from the people, or of the people. The Levitical priest ministered to the people from a place of familiarity. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Just look up. We'll remember what we studied just a few weeks ago. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the struggle of sin better than we do. So how, how, how can that be? Because maybe your struggle with sin is like you struggled on Monday and fell and struggled again on Tuesday and fell and again on Wednesday and fell. And you say, Jesus doesn't know that. Jesus wrestled against sin without sin longer than any of us could. Longer than any of us. He endured temptation further than any of us could have, yet totally without sin. Jesus 
condescends to a depth that's hard for us to fathom. He became sin in such a way that God turned his back on God. That's hard to fathom. How does he become this representative of the people without becoming in every way one of the people who himself needs to be atoned for? How does that happen? How can we read that he became sin, but not a sinner? Seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? He became sin for us who knew no sin, yet did not become a sinner. How can this be? Let me share for you a story that I heard recently about how a fox rids itself of fleas. I'd never heard this before. It was really interesting. When a fox in the wild becomes riddled with fleas, it will go along a hedgerow or a fence line and pick the wool from animals and collect a ball of it in its mouth. And then it will find a body of water that's deep enough for the fox to back down into the body of water slowly as the fleas look for air and move their way from the body and the torso of the fox up to the head and nose of the fox. Ultimately, the fox will submerse even its snout in the water so only the dry piece of cotton is out and the fleas jump on the cotton which time the fox releases the bit of wool and sends the wool floating down the river, comes out of the water, and the fleas are gone. As I think about that situation, I think about the way Jesus removes our sin without himself becoming what needed to be removed. Atoning for us as one from us without himself ever being infected by what infects us. Maybe that's helpful for you. He became sin for us, not a sinner for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God, not God. He sympathizes with our weakness, being tempted, yet without sin. Jesus is not only from us, Jesus is for us. The ignorant and the weak are mentioned. However, friend, who is not mentioned here? The ignorant and the weak. I have oftentimes known my own weaknesses, ignorance, and wandering. And been thankful that Jesus is a priest who helps in that moment of need. However, there is a moment of need in which there is not help from this high priest. It's defiance. It's when we say, I have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. It's when we say, I'm not guilty. I take offense that I've been called weak or ignorant, or that somehow I am not on the straight and narrow path, but now wayward. In that, there is not 
atonement for sin. In fact, the defiant are not included, but are described as apostate, having departed from the truth, of which the author of Hebrews takes great length to warn us against apostasy, makes clear that in that apostasy there is no forgiveness of rebellion. And this is the way it has been and remains today. If you come weak, ignorant, wayward, you will receive the grace and mercy that God has planned. However, according to Numbers chapter 15, defiance does not receive grace and mercy. Verse 30 says this, the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That people shall be utterly cut off, and their iniquity shall be on them. Friend, there is grace and mercy. There is, in fact, grace and mercy flowing deep and wide. But there is not grace and mercy for the defiant who says, I do not need a priest, nor do I need sacrifice. He, however, does minister for the people. He offers sacrifice for the people. Specifically, I want you to understand that he does offer sacrifice, not for the defiant, but for his people, whom Jesus calls his sheep. John chapter 10, and this final verse of this point leads us really conveniently into the next point. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. They listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, and for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. That is wonderful tension. Okay, in order to move us away from this first point, I want you to see that Jesus says, I am the shepherd, king, priest, of the people, for the people. Which people? Not the defiant people. My people. The sheep. Who I know and who know me. And I lay down my life. Not that it's been taken away from me. But I lay it down willingly. And this charge to lay it down willingly has been given to me by the Father. So John 10. He describes perfectly what is our first point and wonderfully what is our second point. No one forced the Son to go make amends for the people. The Son laid himself down willingly. 
as the Father charged him to do. That's wonderful tension. God the Father and God the Son. Let's look at our second point. The high priest is called by God the Father. Verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. High priest is called and chosen by God. Aaron didn't pick himself. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 28 that God said to Moses, Have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priests. God picks the priests. God picked Aaron. God picked his line. The Levitical priesthood is chosen by God. During the first century, when the New Testament is written, and Romans are ruling the people in a somewhat passive-aggressive way, like, yeah, you can still do your temple worship. You can still exercise Judaism, which, by the way, if you want to do a really helpful study, study the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. Honestly, it's one of the few things you might be able to do adequate study on the internet if you need to. And study the intertestamental period. It helps you better understand what Jesus is up against when he teaches that the new covenant has in some way choose word carefully um, revealed more of the old covenant. Intertestamental period. The Greeks didn't do a great job letting Jews be Jews. The Romans tried. The Romans said, you can still do some stuff. You can still have your temple. But we get to say who the priest is. And the Jews were incredibly offended by that. Because who gets to choose who the priest is? They knew only God gets to choose who the priest is. And the priest according to all of their conviction, must come from the line of Aaron and particularly Zadok, Aaron's son. And the Romans come in and say, well, yeah, you can do it, but do it this way. So just as Aaron didn't appoint himself as high priest, neither did Jesus. Now, I want to make this point clear. He does not say that Jesus was reluctant to be the high priest, it's important that you know Jesus is just as indignant over our sin as God the Father is. Jesus is not less offended by our rebellion than God the Father is. So Jesus isn't in heaven saying, I don't know what the big deal is. Why do they need a high priest at all? He is motivated, but he is not self-appointed. Which is a whole nother sermon. The humility of Jesus comes to the forefront here. Jesus is not seeking his own glory, but rather the glory of the Father. John chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8. For proof that it was God who appointed Jesus as high priest, the author uses Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 5. It's a quote of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we already read that quote in our study earlier in Hebrews. But I want to remind you what the word begotten looks like. 
The word begotten looks like um, I have genealogied you. Does that sound right? Genealogied? I have been your genealogy. Hmm, okay. That's a vivid word. It's kind of hard to even say. That's what's in verse 5. Just as Aaron didn't appoint himself, neither did Jesus. Jesus displays his humility. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is the quote. The Father has begotten the Son. Now, that quote comes to light even clearer when we read the next quote, which is in verse 6. That comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. David prophesies that the one who is his Lord is also his priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That character, which is really puzzling. This is the first mention of Melchizedek in, uh, in Hebrews. But he is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. And then disappears, only to come up again in Psalm 110 verse 4. When we consider the context that David is writing in Psalm 110, it's clear that David prophesies about this coming priest who is a king priest after David. He's a unique priest for sure. He is a king priest who is of everlasting order. Everlasting order. Begotten of God after the order of Melchizedek. Not a Levitical priest, but a Melchizedekian priest. When I typed that the first time, I thought I was writing about a character in Star Trek. The Melchizedekian priests. <laughs> Forgive me, my dad was a Star Trek fan. This high priest that David writes about is not of the Levitical order, but of the order of Melchizedek. Well, like I said before, we're not going to learn a lot about Melchizedek here. We'll learn a lot about it later. Would you take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7? Take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, and let's learn one thing that is important for us to understand how it is that God is appointing his high priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, we read this. He, referring to Melchizedek, is without father and mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Genealogy. He doesn't have earthly parents. You can't track down where he came from. And doesn't have a beginning of days nor an end of days puzzling puzzling it's not just me is it like no one read that and went oh I understand <laughs> here's what I do know I do know that the quote from Psalm 110 helps me better understand the quote from Psalm 2 you are my son I have begotten you the father says I'm your genealogy you're a priest not Levitical Aaron begets those priests you're a priest like Melchizedek. What's Melchizedek's genealogy? It's not human. No father or mother. This 
is the high priest that Hebrews is heralding. And this high priest who is being heralded is ordained to minister grace and mercy on our behalf by God the Father. God the Father is our high priest's genealogy. There is a high priest, the Christ, superior to any Levitical priest. Christ is the high priest over us in every way. Every way we can imagine. But Christ is the high priest, gentle with us in every way we need. Christ condescends, takes on flesh, lives with all the infirmities of human flesh, hunger and fatigue, challenges of the fall, and is acquainted with our struggle, yet without sin. I'm not, however, curious for this moment if you know the gentleness of Jesus. I am, however, concerned in this moment. Do we know that the Father in heaven who decreed such a high priest for us has dealt with us gently? Are we more protected from this false dichotomy that somehow Jesus really likes me, thank goodness, because God would have destroyed me if it were up to him. Can we just be protected from that blasphemy? Not just in our confession, because no one who walked in the room was going to say, yeah, Jesus is the hero, God's the vil- God the Father's the villain, I know, and unless someone points it out today, that's what I'll believe the rest of my life. No one walked in the room saying that, But today you'll sin. And when it's over, will you understand you can run to the throne and receive mercy and grace from a father who wants you to play around his throne? And so I'm not trying to correct your spoken theology. I'm trying to guard your lived theology. What will you do when you feel needy? Will you say, the Father has prepared for me access in all of my neediness? I wonder, I guess, if we could guard our gospel confession from pagan Greek mythology. I guess that's the point. If I may say quickly, there is a view that has two ditches. One view, lead, or the view, leads to a ditch of saying, the son was forced into 
propitiation or into uh, the, the cross by the Father. So he just did what he was told to do. The other view is that the Son saw the wrath of the Father and thought, I'd better do something. And unilaterally jumped in to save us. Those are both ditches. What if somebody clipped that little bit of the sermon and then posted it online? Like, did you hear what IBC just said? Those are both ditches. Instead, both of those are represented in pagan mythology. Let me give you one example of them. Agamemnon, the leader of the Greek people, finds himself in hot water because he hunts a deer that was one of the personal pets of the god Artemis, goddess Artemis. Artemis is so mad that Agamemnon has killed one of her pet deer that she says, now your army on its way to battle Troy is going to lose wind and your fleet will stall in the sea unless you sacrifice to me your oldest daughter. Ooh. The God is angry. And the only way out is to punish the thing that's most prized to the person. So, what will we do? How will we appease for the fits of rage these gods feel? Well, we'll punish the innocent. That's pagan! And it's not the gospel! It's not the gospel. John 10. No one takes it, but I give it, just as the Father has ordained it to be. <laughs> Wonderful. God the Father has ordained his covenant of redemption and mercy and grace. Hebrews 4.16. God the Father planned and willed our needy access to his throne. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons and daughters, God sends the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. You're not strangers. You're not slaves. You're sons. Even heirs of eternal inheritance through God. I want you to see. Here, here's, here's what I, I want you to see. We get to this point and you say, that, that all sounds like doctrinal truth, but I don't, like, how is that relevant to me? I want you to understand that all of your lips and your fingertips are directed by the theological confession of your heart. Everything you do, parent, employee, neighbor, citizen, everything you do will be shaped by what you think God is like. I'm going to suggest, like if you, don't, if you don't get God right 
from his word. It's so hard for me to believe you're going to get parenting even close to right. I think it's going to be a disaster. And so I know I'm trying to expound on doctrine. Is there any member of the Trinity that's a reluctant party to the covenant of redemption? No. That's, that's my sermon. And you go, what? Sounds educational, but so? And I'm telling you, you can't work your job tomorrow if you don't believe that. You can't do it well. You can't parent when your kids mess up. When your spouse messes up. I'm, I'm saying lips and fingertips are conditioned by that right there. There's no reluctant member of the Trinity to the covenant of redemption. Uh, Dale Sturm's going to teach in March. Dale Sturm's going to teach a class on Trinitarianism to further defend us from an accidental lived theology that says, yeah, Jesus is really for me. Good thing, because God was hunting me. And I'll finish with this. Romans 8, 1 through 4. And I want you to listen to the Trinitarian assurance of the gospel. The unified delight of the Godhead in the covenant of redemption. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's what chapter 7 was. Chapter 7 was Paul going, I'm so needy. And chapter 8 starts with, but there's no condemnation. Run to the throne and play. Needy. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. God has accomplished what the law, weakened by my flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. The God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us as we walk now, not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit. The throne of God is ours because of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, would you guard us from the, the fear of that you've somehow set up a hedge against your people when we stumble or when we stray. You've identified our frailties as weaknesses, as ignorance. These are besetting things to us. We walk in this feeble flesh. We stumble, we fall. And in the moment, we hear in our ear that you are displeased angry closed off to us 
However, your word expounds on this truth that you, Father, that God the Son, that God the Spirit have delighted in themselves to ordain, accomplish, and apply the covenant of redemption that says to all your people, welcome. There's no condemnation. And Father, I know that what you've given us here in your word is a confession. It's, it's part of what we believe. So help me, help us to better apply what we believe to what we do. How we interact, how we share Christ, how we preach the gospel, how we correct children, how we instruct them in righteousness, how we embrace and love our spouse, how we act in unity as a congregation of diverse people. Father, honor yourself as you direct us to these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing again today.